Well, good morning. As Brady mentioned, I'm Tom. I'm the congregational pastor here at Salem, and it's my privilege to be able to open up the Word of God for us this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series here for this city, and we are all the way now to Jeremiah 36. So I do invite you to uh, turn in your Bible in whatever shape or form that comes, because uh, we will be uh, digging right in and checking out all the details that are going on there. Well, it was the summer of 1982. I had transferred colleges. I went to Iowa State University for two years. Uh, the Lord got a hold of my life and redirected, and kind of the short version is I first of all felt called to the pastorate and go to seminary, but he said, first of all, I want you to do something else. I want you to teach. And so leaving out some of the details, uh, feeling very called to be a bilingual elementary school teacher, I uh, headed off to Central College in Pella, Iowa, where they do a really, really, really good job of languages. The other thing that was really nice about the school was I found my wife. Uh, she was speaking Spanish as well. In fact, uh, she was so fluent, she tested out of everything. <laughs> uh, she had taken four years in, in high school and then had spent a year in Argentina. Uh, she's got this down. So she's just doing the advanced level stuff. Meanwhile, for me, it's year one of Spanish ever and doing it at the college level. So we've been dating for six months, we're very much in love, but now here comes summer. What do you do with that three-month break in there? Well, the Lord had plans, and uh, it was to send me down to Mexico. My dad knew somebody, said, yeah, you can uh, go down there, he'll take care of you, he'll get you different kinds of things to do, so put me on a plane, and boom, I'm down in the Yucatan Peninsula, lots and lots of trees down there. In fact, I remember flying in and going, where's the airport? <laughs> All I see is this massive sea of green. It's like, interesting, is there nothing there? Eventually found out that was not grass, that was the top of the trees. And you cannot see the ground because of all the forests that are down there. There's a few little places cut out, but there's way more forest than anything else. And so uh, one of the opportunities I had was to hang out with a Mayan pastor down there. Because on the Yucatan Peninsula, that's the where the majority of the Mayan people live. And you know what they speak? Not Spanish. <laughs> but yeah, I'll be glad to uh, go around with you. At least the, the pastor could speak some Spanish and we could communicate that way. And so I had a variety of, of experiences and one of them was spending a week with this pastor. And one day he said, oh, we need to go get some wood. And so it's uh, four or five guys and we're gonna go get wood. It's like, okay, sounds like a fun job. And so we're driving on this rickety old vehicle. I don't even remember what it was, but uh, all I remember is this very bumpy gravel road out in the middle of nowhere, and then we pull off. And I'm going, why are we pulling off? Well, it's because we're going to go get the wood. And then they lead over to this place. It's like, oh, I guess there is a little bit of a clearing here, isn't there? I'm going, there's no place to go out here. But sure enough, there's this small place to go into uh, the forest. It's a little bit wider than that. In fact, one of the guys in the group carries a machete, trimming things back as they trim off the pathway there. And so we're going along, going along, and we come to a fork in this pathway. It looks nothing like this. <laughs> 
That's the best we could do. So imagine that there's no road. Everything is really thick. I mean, you cannot see the sky. So even though you can kind of see it up there, nope, we, we couldn't see the sky. It's very narrow. And we come to this split in the road. And the guys start huddling up without me. And they're speaking Mayan, so I'm clueless. But I get a certain amount of, which way are we supposed to go? Because one place is, one route is going to take us to where we want to go, and one of them is not. So we are at a bit of a turning point. We've got to go left or right. Well, this gets me thinking about Henry Blackaby's book called Experiencing God. Anybody here been through that? Yep, I know it's, it's rather older, as am I. But obviously, it's stuck with me. And step five, well, let me back up, is experiencing God. The tagline is knowing and doing the will of God. How do you do this? And so there's this incredibly humble pastor, Henry Blackaby. I even have a guy who was friends with him. It's like he is just, he, he, he really is who he is in this book. And so he lays out uh, seven steps as we try to discern what is the will of God. Now, step five was an interesting one because it says in step five, God brings us to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. Now, when I first read that, I thought, I think you're overstating it here. A crisis of belief? Why do you call it a crisis? But then as I continued to read, it was like, oh, because when God shows up and says, here's what I want you to do, you've got yourself a fork in the road. And you're going, you've only got two choices. You're going to have to obey or disobey. There's no going just like you were. There's going to be a change. You've got to choose. Well, and that's where we were. We needed to choose. Which way are we going to go? Well, that reminds me of Jeremiah 36 here. There are some choices to be made. And people are going to be making choices. Some will make good ones, some will make bad ones, but we definitely have uh, people coming to a fork in the road in their relationship with the Lord. So I invite you to turn to pay, uh, Jeremiah 36, and let's open in prayer as we open up God's word this morning. Father, do thank you for the opportunity to be with you and in your word today. And Lord, the fact that we are meeting with you means we're going to have a crisis at some point today because we're going to come into contact with you and your word, and we're going to have to choose to move to the left or to the right. So Father, I ask you to open our eyes and ears, give us ears to hear and hearts to obey, and Lord, we look forward to meeting with you this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah 36, we'll start here with the first three verses. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps the people of Judah will hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them. They will each Turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. Right away, we see our first fork in the road. Jeremiah, the Lord spoke. What's he going to do? Is he going to do what the Lord asked? Now, we're familiar with Jeremiah, and we're pretty sure he just is going to do the right thing. But let's at least suppose there might have been a hesitation. What might he have hesitated about? 
Uh, first of all, that's going to be a long project, because as we're talking now about 20 years of the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, and the Lord saying to him now, okay, I'd like you to write down everything that I've said to you. That's going to be a long project. In fact, if you looked at the book of Jeremiah, you see there's 52 chapters. That's kind of a long one. He wants them to write it all down. That's a lot of work. It's been 20 years or so. And perhaps maybe he even thought, hmm, is this a good idea or a bad idea? I've been de delivering these messages one at a time, and now you want me to put them all together. You know, they weren't well received one at a time. <laughs> I don't think this is going to go well if we stack them all together. Might have had some hesitation. He might have had some hesitation, too, because, like, Lord, you've been saying these bad things are going to happen, and nothing happens. 20 years of, pardon my saying, idle threats. But, hey, if that's what you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. Well, there's one other thing, though, too, that the Lord says when he asks Jeremiah to do this. Notice how he says in verse 3, perhaps. Perhaps they will hear. Perhaps they will respond. Perhaps they will turn. You know, this makes me think of 2 Peter 3, where it says, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And maybe that's what grabbed the heart of Jeremiah. Perhaps some will turn. The Lord doesn't want anybody to perish. Jeremiah doesn't want anybody to perish. So yes, let's put this book together. Let's get it done. I mean, in the whole book of Jeremiah, he's calling the people at least 47 times to return. The Lord is patient. He does want all to come to repentance. Let's continue in verse 4. So Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am restricted. I am not allowed to go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the scroll the words the Lord had you, that I had you write as I dictated. Read them to all the people of Judah who come in from their towns. Perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord and will each turn from their wicked ways for the anger and wrath pronounced against this people by the Lord are great. He does it. He gets it written down. All of these chapters are going to be written out. And notice, too, there's even a plan. Go do it on a day of fasting. Yes, surely then when the people are showing up to the temple and it's like, oh, we're here, for we're fasting, we're worshiping, surely there'll be a great openness, perhaps, to what the Lord has to say. We've read ahead in the script. We know it doesn't go that way. But perhaps, as this is happening here, so what will we do? Let's read on. So Baruch, son of Neriah, did everything Jeremiah the prophet told him to do. At the Lord's temple, he read the words of the Lord from the scroll. 
In the ninth month of the fifth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, a time of fasting before the Lord was proclaimed for all the people in Jerusalem and those who had come from the towns of Judah. From the room of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper courtyard at the entrance of the new gate of the temple, Baruch read all of, to all of the people at the Lord's temple the words of Jeremiah from the scroll. When Micaiah, son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the secretary's room in the royal palace, where all of the officials were sitting. Elishama, the secretary, Deliah, son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, son of Akbor, Gemariah, son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, son of Hananiah, and all the other officials. After, after Micaiah told them everything he had heard Baruch read to the people from the scroll, all the officials sent Jehudi, son of Nathaniah, uh, the son of Shemaliah, or, yeah, Shelemiah, the son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, Take the, bring the scroll from which you have read to the people and come. So Baruch, son of Neriah, went to them with the scroll in his hand, and he said to them, sit down, please, and read it to us. There's some good news. Did you catch it? Somebody responded. The book is being read from some place where lots of people who are at the temple can hear it. Somebody was listening and take it, taking it to heart. This Micaiah person heard it and said, I need to share this message. I mean, we don't see him breaking down in tears and ripping his clothes and putting on sackcloth or anything, but his response is, this word has got to get out. I've got to go tell somebody about this. There wasn't a great big national revival, but somebody heard, somebody listened, somebody responded. And so he went to all of these guys. I'm glad they didn't put the names of all the officials in there. So he went and said, you guys, you've got to hear this. And so he gave them a short version of what it was that he had heard uh, from the words of Jeremiah written on the scroll. Meanwhile, then the officials hear the short version, and what's their response? We want to hear the whole thing. I don't want your Reader's Digest version. Tell us the whole thing. So go get them. Let's have it all read here. We want to hear the whole thing. So fork number two, we see Micaiah having a good response. I've heard the word of the Lord. What do I do? Then we go to the officials, or he goes to the officials and says, hey, I've heard this word from the Lord. You need to hear this. And they agreed. So there's fork number three. We have the officials, after hearing the short version, they said, yes, please, tell us more. We need to hear this. And so he, he gets uh, everybody together, and we're going to hear now the long version. So here we are, two positive responses. I mean, it's okay to you know, like have a little happy party here, glitter or something. Somebody's listening. After all the rejections, all the things that's happened to Jeremiah, this is being actually received by somebody leadership nonetheless so let's continue in verse 15 so baruch read it to them and when they heard all these words they looked at each other in fear and said to baruch we must report all these words to the king then they asked baruch tell us how did you come to write all this did jeremiah dictate it i love that <laughs> Did Jeremiah come up with this stuff? This sounds familiar. It's like, uh, yes, he did. 
Verse 18, yes, Baruch replied. He dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them in ink on the scroll. Then the official said to Baruch, you and Jeremiah, go and hide. Don't let anyone know where you are. Wow, awesome response. What does it say that they first of all did? They feared. They heard this bad news. They heard the punishments that are coming because the wickedness is created in the land. They feared. Good answer, number one. Number two, we're not keeping this to ourselves. Get it out to the king. This needs to come to him. And then number three, Jeremiah, Baruch, hide. This is probably not going to go well. But notice they're willing to take it to the king and, in fact, insisting on taking this word to the king, even though it may not be taken very well. In fact, maybe the king would even turn on them, but they at least said, Jeremiah, Baruch, you need to go hide. What an impressive response. Micaiah, the officials, and now the word is going to the king. What a breath of fresh air here in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. Well, let's see how that goes. Verse 20. After they put the scroll in the room of Elishama the secretary, they went to the king in the courtyard and reported everything to him. The king said to Jehudi to get the, sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and Jehudi brought it from the room of Elishama the secretary and read it to the king and all the officials standing beside him. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all of his attendants who heard all of these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Even though Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Instead, the king commanded Jeremiah, a son of the king, Sariah, son of Az Azriel, and Shelemiah, son of Abdiel, to arrest Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord had hidden them. There's fork number five. The king hears it. And how does he respond? Incredibly poorly. But I'd like us to try to get a little more of the feel of what was going on in the courtroom as that happened. So let's say we take Jeremiah's chapter 1 through 25, and that's everything that is being read to them. And then let's say it takes them as long to do it in Hebrew as it does in English. Okay? That's 28 pages out of the book of Jeremiah. So imagine reading front and back. I almost had the courage to do this, but I couldn't quite bring myself to it. But imagine me reading the front and back of the first page, tearing it out of the Bible, and throwing it in the fire. Okay? Now, there's 28 pages. Okay? So it would be like, read two pages, tear, throw away. Read two pages, tear, throw away. Well, if it takes about eight minutes to do each page, we're here for almost two hours. Read, read, rip, burn. 
Read, read, rip, burn. Don't do it, king. Read, read, rip, burn. That's a lot of defiance. In fact, we could perhaps even say that the king had fork number five, six, seven, eight, nine, with each page, nope, nope, nope. Every time he heard for two hours, nope, don't care, don't care, don't care. Wow, that's an incredibly horrible response. That's really messed up. And notice, too, the attendants didn't budge. Some of the officials are going, no, 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 no. But he's got attendants. No fear, no ripping of the clothes, nothing. Wow. That's a lot. In one chapter, some incredible accepting of the word of the Lord and some incredible rejecting of the Lord. How did the king get to such a bad place? How did Israel get to such a bad place? Well, we've got lots of details in the word, but it didn't happen overnight, did it? It wasn't a one-time decision, okay, we're outright rebelling against the Lord, but rather it was gradual. In fact, we could probably keep the sermon going for hours if we went back to actually looking at the history and things that we did, but let's do it simply like this. Imagine that we're supposed to be going straight here, and so when you come to a fork, you're not supposed to go to the left, you're supposed to keep straight. Well, imagine them taking just a little left path, and then a little more left, and a little more, and all of a sudden, in what direction are they headed? You know, eventually, the completely opposite and wrong direction. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over a course of time. And they would come to forks in their lives and they would choose to the left or to the right. So how would Judah even then get back on the right path? Well, I'd like to say that they need to go back to all of those forks where they went left and they should have gone right. Revisit those. Repent. Take those things seriously. Each one of them. There's some people I know that they get faced with things like that in their life. Yeah, I've made a lot of mistakes. And their answer is, well, nobody's perfect. They kind of cringe because that's a statement of the obvious. And most of the time, there's no repentance there. Oh, I give up. I'm just not perfect. Blah, blah, blah. Refusing to own what they had done, what it was that they had said or done to their wife to their husband, to their kids, to their parents, to their employers, to the employees. If Judah's going to get back on track, they're going to need to go back to those poor decisions and repent of them and turn back the other way. Well, we can have a similar problem in our lives. We can find ourselves in places where we really didn't imagine that we would be at. In fact, we were sure that we were never going to do that. In fact, how many of us have said, oh, I'm never going to be like my mother or my father? And it turned out just like him. <laughs> How did that happen? One little 
fork in the road, wrongly taken, leading to another, leading to another, leading to another. And we really need to go back to each one of those. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. But it's really important. We, do, we need to make that right turn back onto the path where we had strayed from. So I'd like us to take a little time with that this morning to go, okay, where are some of those forks in the road that I chose the wrong path for? And I'd like to start with uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians lays out a lot of description of what is love like. And I'd like us to ponder the number of times and ways that we have not, in fact, acted in that loving way. There are other options. We can be loving or we can not be loving. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 13. When was the last time you took the wrong fork? You chose impatience instead of patience. You chose meanness instead of kindness. You chose envy instead of contentment. You chose boasting instead of lifting up the other. You chose pride instead of humility. Or how about dishonoring instead of being respectful? Maybe you chose self-seeking over seeking their good. Maybe you chose easily angered instead of bearing with. Maybe you chose to keep a record of wrongs instead of forgiving. Perhaps you delighted in their vices instead of their virtues. Maybe you chose harming instead of protecting. Maybe you assumed ill will instead of goodwill. Maybe you assumed the worst instead of hoping for the best. Maybe you chose abandoning instead of persevering. We have lots of forks in the road when we have relationships going on. And we have the option to choose. But if we're going to heal that relationship, we're going to need to unchoose that. We're going to need to go back and apologize for that. And we can get back on that right path. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul also said, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Why did he say that? Probably because that's what it looks like and feels like most of the time. My wife, my husband, my kids, my parents, my employer, my employee, my neighbor. But, the, uh, but Paul says it's flesh and blood isn't the actual battle. That's where the, the skirmish is taking place. But the problem actually ends up being in the more spiritual realm with authorities and principalities. And the bigger question is, how am I doing in my relationship with the Lord? Because actually, if I'm doing well in my relationship with the Lord, it's a lot easier to make that right choice, even though it's hard. Where are we at in our relationship with the Lord? That came into a very 
clear question for me back in <clears throat> January and February of 1994. I was a solo pastor in a very divided church. I like to refer to it as the Hatfields and the McCoys insisted on going to the same church. And when you stand in the middle of that, you get shot. So during those months, um, it was just plain old hard to get out of bed every single day. Lots of crying out in the morning to finally get to the point where I could drag myself out of bed. But one morning it was very different. I was laying out my usual complaints and frustrations and pleas for help and all of a sudden I heard, not audibly, but it was so clear. Do you trust me? Oh, well, yeah, Lord, of course I trust you. Do you really trust me? At that point, I have a heart attack. First of all, I realized it went from me praying up to him talking. Very clearly. In silent but English words. And the second part was, why did he ask twice? Do you really trust me? And it was like, yeah. It's easy to trust you with my head, but it's harder to trust you with my heart. Yeah, I trust you. Everything changed. Did not have that trouble getting out of bed again. Do you trust me? Really trust me? And he asks that of all of us at varying points along the way, in varying ways, varying times. Will you trust me with that difficult husband, that difficult wife? The difficult kids, difficult parents, difficult job, difficult neighbors, difficult nation. Will you trust me? And we find out sometimes the answer is no. I'd rather be keeping a record of wrongs. I'd rather be harming I'd rather be impatient. It's really not, our problem really isn't with that person. It's my relationship with the Lord. Will I trust him in this mess? Will I trust him in death? I've had the privilege of starting a grief share group, and there's a group of people who are going through this together, and they've lost a child, a husband, and it comes down to wrestling. Will I trust you, Lord, in the midst of my great sorrow? Will I trust him? And there are lots of times when we have actually said, in the short term, no. But then at that point, at some point along the way, the Lord says, will you trust me? It comes back again. And even like in Judah here, 20 years later, perhaps they will turn. But you know, we can. We can turn. 
we see the Lord as eager as ever to welcome us back into a very close relationship if we will just turn. His arms are open wide for us. He wants us to come to him.